want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. Even though people think of me as a subscription person, I always say that for me, subscriptions are simply a tactic. Subscriptions force companies to better align their pricing with performance. If the subscriber doesn't perceive ongoing value, they cancel the subscription. So it becomes the organization's responsibility to ensure that the customer is achieving their desired outcome. That's the real goal of subscriptions, to better align payment with outcome. Professor Marco Bertini is a professor at both ESADE in Spain and the Harvard Business School here in the U.S. He's an expert on performance-based pricing, not just subscriptions, but pay-for-consumption models and even outcome-based pricing. Marco's new book, The Ends Game, How Smart Companies Stop Selling Products and Start Delivering Value, which he co-wrote with Oded Konigsberg of the London Business School, is one of the best pricing books I've read in a long time. In today's conversation, we talk about how to optimize your pricing model to ensure that your customers can access the value you provide, use your offering well, and most importantly, get the performance outcomes they need. Welcome to the show, Marco. Thank you very much, Robbie, for having me. It's it's a great pleasure. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. Now, I wanted to just start with a little background on you. You're a professor, you teach, you research. Can you talk a little bit about what your area of study is and the area that you teach? Yeah, of course. So I'm uh, regularly a professor at ESADE uh, Business School, which is a school in Barcelona in Spain. But I'm actually on leave this academic year at the Harvard Business School. So I'm in Boston. I'm coming to you from Cambridge, actually, specifically. I'm a pricing guy, so that's for sure, at the high level. Within that, I've always been fascinated by all the behavioral issues around pricing. So I mix economics, sociology, and psychology. I've actually had training at the doctorate level in all three areas. Believe it or not, in the 14 years that I've had my course, I'm still struggling to find the right title for it because if I call it pricing, it's too narrow. If I call it monetization, it sounds too capitalistic. I don't exactly know the title, but I'll tell you in a few words what it is. My students come to class the first day, and the same thing I would do with executives. My students come to class the first day, and I tell them, look, you all know about marketing. You all know about customers, understanding their needs, their wants, developing their jobs to be done, some would say. So developing propositions for them, a product or a service. And I say, that's amazing. How do we make money of that? That is the answer that the course tries to answer. How do we convert all this goodness of customers into revenue for the organization? And I always emphasize, maybe because I want profit, that's fine with me. But just basically because I want to reinvest in my customer. It's my food, right? As a company, I need revenue to do stuff, whether to repay my investors Uh, to do more stuff for my customers, to invest in some sort of social environmental initiative. I just need funds, right? And so how do I think about that question and develop something that is effective, right? That's what I do. Got it. We met a few years ago at the World of Business Ideas event where you were talking about this very question, like how do you apply pricing strategy to make and manage money and run your business? And we noticed we obviously had a lot of overlap because your expertise in 
pricing and sociology and psychology and my work with membership models and subscription pricing very much taps into those same concepts of what does it mean for the people involved as well as kind of the pricing model itself. Sure. And we were talking about this question of how organizations can better align pricing and business models with the impact that they have on the customer. And I'm wondering, why don't more organizations think about these kinds of issues, aligning pricing with impact? Why hasn't this been a hotter topic in the past? Right. And that's kind of the thing that I've been observing over the last five, 10 years, which led me to write a book about this, is this idea that some things are changing in our interaction that allow us to even start contemplating putting our money where our mouth is. And number one, is just the technology that goes behind it, right? So in many situations, not all situations, of course, I'm now able to measure impact in some way with some proxy through some sensor or something else that allows me to sort of manage that risk, right? Because that uncertainty or risk that we mentioned before in a transaction kind of always exists, right? Or is it perceived by our customers? So the question is, if I have some sort of performance model in the way I'm getting paid as a company, I'm taking on that risk. Now, will I do it? Yes, if I can mitigate the risk. And the very first step in that is having insight into what that looks like, right? And so the way I think about this and the way I explain it to my students and managers in companies is, if you think about research that we do as a company, the very first thing we discovered, we were told in business school to do as research is understand the needs of the customer. That is the very first thing you were told to do. If you want to be customer focused, understand what they want. Makes perfect sense. Then a few years ago, we were told, okay, that's not sufficient. You also have to know how they go about making their purchase. This is the customer journey, right? And manage the customer experience. So, okay, now the research department not only needs to find out what you want, but also how you go about buying thing. And if I know how you go about buying stuff, I can influence that decision in some way or optimize it. And so what I talk about is kind of a third wave of sorts of research, which is what happened beyond the moment of purchase, which is what we call impact data, right? What actually happens to you and the product when you use it? What is the proxy that I can use to measure performance that is pretty solid, cannot be tampered with, and that can build a revenue model around? And I think, Robbie, we're going to speak about this as we go our conversation, but let me just sort of say up front, I am not saying every company tomorrow or after you listen to this podcast, go and change your revenue model to a performance metric because it's a pretty hard thing to do. But just having it in your mind, given the technology that is available, will probably save you a lot of heartaches when it comes to being careful of being disrupted by startups and whatnot, right? Yeah, that is so important, what you just said that even if you don't change your business model, don't change your pricing structure, if you just spend some time understanding what the customer does after the moment of transaction, and I'm going to add whether or not they're getting value and what kind of value they're actually getting from your product. If you do that, regardless of your pricing structure, you're going to have greater loyalty and greater engagement and greater trust. I think so. Yeah, we've talked about this before and I'm completely behind what you say. <laughs> yeah. So now you mentioned that these ideas, you recently wrote a book about it. You and Oded Konigsberg wrote this book, The Ends Game, which I have on my desk <laughs> and I can look see at it. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and it's focused on how organizations can build these impact-based models by focusing on that post-sales customer value. The title 
I felt like I was saying it wrong before the book came out and you told me what it was called. I kept thinking I was hearing it wrong, but it's called the ends game. If you look at it from the customer perspective, we came up with this framework, which is kind of what the book is based on. The idea is that, okay, a customer of yours, we sort of hypothesize that a customer wants to do business with you because they've got a problem to solve, a job to be done. And that's what they're buying, right? They're hopefully buying a solution. Now, if there is going to be pain points in this transaction, pain points towards getting the desired solution, what kind of pain points there are? And we believe that all pain points boil down to three types, okay? Clearly defined in the book. First of all, access. Clearly, if you don't have access to my solution, you will not solve your problem. Or a solution, you will not solve your problem. So access is the first sort of gate, stage gate, right? Once you have access, what is the next pain point? Consumption. In order to be able to ultimately get the desired outcome, I have to have access to a solution, hopefully your solution, and I have to consume it. If I don't consume it or I consume it suboptimally, I will not get the desired outcome. And then third and last, you have to have performance. So you have to have access to a solution, you have to use that solution, and then it has to perform in the way you would like it to perform. If you've got these three things, access, consumption, and performance, then you get your desired outcome. And so having sort of had that realization, we had we said to ourselves, what kind of pain points does a classic transaction model address? None of those, if you think about it, right? Because selling stuff at a store is a really poor way of granting access because you have to buy it up front. It's inconvenient. So there's all sorts of problems to do with access. And subscriptions, in my opinion, are an amazing way to alleviate access problems, which is the first hurdle that there is. So we call it the ends game because instead of thinking about your revenue model from the means to an end, the product or service, you should be thinking about it from the ends that customers are looking for. And the ends game is supposed to be this idea that, hey, you've got this access consumption performance continuum. You have all these different revenue models that can fall under those three things. Are you playing the game to get closer and closer towards your customer, giving them the ends they're looking for? That's my best summary. No, it's <laughs> really that. helpful. And you really did two things there. One of them is you explained the ends game and kind of the, it comes from this, what is the final outcome? Do the ends justify the means? And this idea of it's like a game, there's a lot of variables and you're trying to play it based on kind of the hand you've been dealt and what your exactly. competitors or how they're playing as well. So I actually think it's a very clever name and the idea of the ends and the means and kind of thinking through both parts. And then you also started to kind of dig into those steps on the way to performance-oriented pricing, those three pain points, access, consumption, performance, and the importance for an organization to optimize each one of those with the customer in mind. And you brought up earlier that it starts by taking a step back and just saying, that's how I need to think about things before I even start to put a price or a pricing structure around it. Exactly. So why are these important? I purposely called them pain points before, right? So again, let's backtrack. I am a customer. I'm doing business with you because I have a problem and hopefully you can solve it for me. You can sell me the product that hopefully solves the problem, but just by selling, as I was saying before, I might find it hard to reach or it's too expensive to buy up front, like access problem. It just may sit there and I don't really use it that much because the situation doesn't allow me to use it that much or it might just not do what it's supposed to do. Now, these pain points have a material importance to the business because any customer that perceives a pain point 
or we also called it risk before. There is uncertainty in a transaction. Uncertainty is not free. Risk is not free and pain points are not free. What's going to happen? People are going to stay out of the market or even if I enter the market, just in case I'm going to reduce my willingness to pay because I have to cater for this uncertainty, right? Yeah. A very, very simple example. Sorry, Robbie, is like something, either a piece of machinery or a car or something that is financial access. The upfront expenditure is very, very large. By forcing people to buy very expensive things up front, clearly the market is a lot smaller than it could be. I have profitable customers be profitable under a different revenue model. They say to themselves, I just cannot afford this up front. So I'm out of this market. And so me as a business, I've just shrunk my total addressable market. Right. Right. And I love the example of cars. I, I actually used that example in my first book, Membership Economy, to talk about unbundling the value of buying a car, right? Because say, I need to buy a car because I need to get to work, right? Well, I have other options. I can take the bus. I can take an Uber. I can rent a car. I can lease a car. I can get a taxi. Honestly, I could ride a bike, ride a skateboard, walk, lots of different solutions. But then if I say, well, I also have three kids and two car seats and I need to get them around, that adds to the complexity. But if you focus on the end user and what their goals are, you can repackage that value. And I think what you're pointing out, the access is kind of the first hurdle, right? Because if you say you have to buy the car and I say, but I live in the city, I have nowhere to park it. Or like you said, I can't afford to write that kind of a check. I'm out of the game, even though there is some value that could be derived from having access to some kind of car experience. Mentioning this sort of brought up a thought that I want to share. So in the research that we conducted, one of the things that kind of surprised us, but then when we saw it happening over and over again, actually kind of made sense, is that if you force yourself as a company to think about at some moment in time, moving my revenue model to something that's more aligned with outcomes, you know what it does? As a company, you start thinking about those outcomes a lot more because, hey, ultimately my money is going to come out of those, right? And then what happens? At some magical moment, you look back and you say, oh man, my product and service is actually not aligned with the outcome they're asking me to achieve, right? Now, before I was making money on the product and that was pretty safe there. And I was hoping it would do what it's supposed to do. But now that I'm aligning my money with the outcome or thinking about doing so, I want to look back and make sure the products are actually delivering on that thing. I love that. And I think if people take nothing else away from this, which of course, there's already been like 10 amazing nuggets of value, but I feel like this is so important. I mean, just that process of saying, what is it that brought the customer to me and what is the outcome that they desire and hope for at that moment when they're buying from me? And if you just ask yourself that question when you're building product, when you're thinking about support, when you're thinking about how to talk about it and market it, it totally changes everything, right? Like I don't go to a store to buy a blouse because I want to own a blouse. I go to a store because I want to look professional in my meeting. And if you say, hey, everybody, Robbie wants to look professional. How do we help her look professional? right? It changes Agreed. everything. And without giving a sort of the red sort of company names, and I'm sure this has happened to you too. I've helped out a couple of companies who moved away from selling a product, a piece of hardware into subscription. And more than once it's happened to me that when they start doing the subscription, I'm sure you relate to this. They look back and think to themselves, actually, you know what? Do I even need that product that I build my brand on? I mean, actually, 
now maybe it's the completely secondary and maybe, God forbid, maybe my value offering doesn't have to be anchored on that product anymore. And like, it's like this sort of cosmic sort of wow moment <laughs> yeah. that you think, actually, you know what? And it's interesting to me, at least an academic, right? Because maybe it's, this is purely academic, but it's interesting because my revenue model is actually changing my value offering. It's, it goes the other way around than it typically does, right? Typically, you create a value offering and then you monetize it. But now the way I monetize is changing the way the value I actually creates. It kind of goes backwards, right? a feedback loop of sorts. Exactly. And when you and I first met, I mean, one of the things I'll always remember is that one of the first things you said is, you're very interesting. And I don't think subscriptions are the be all end all though, right? Like you kind of, you kind of <laughs> like launched right in <laughs> Oops. with, you know, and it's provocative and it's interesting, but I think it's really important that what subscriptions do though, is they're a very practical means of forcing the company to rethink how they deliver value. Like you said, it becomes the forcing function to say, okay, I'm a newspaper Historically, I've made money by selling ads, which means I want to get as many people to read my content as possible. Now I'm making money subscribing, which means the readers are paying. Instead of making articles that a lot of people will look at, I have to write articles that a few people or fewer people are willing to pay for. And so suddenly, and I think this has been surprising to a lot of the newsrooms and the editorial teams, that means you have to change your content. That means you have to change your core product if you really care about the impact. And if your impact is for an advertiser, it's very different than if your impact is for a reader. Correct. And if I didn't apologize at the time, I'll apologize now. <laughs> we're always learning about these things. But as I learned more about the topic, actually that response at the time was a bit naive because I think I was talking about metrics and you are talking about subscription. I think that sometimes these two things get intermingled, but are actually separate at the same time. I'm still wrapping my head around it. <laughs> I was not offended. I found it provocative, thought-provoking, and really got to thinking. And I do always say that subscription is a pricing tactic. It's not a strategy by itself. And the goal is, and I call it treating your customer like a member, focusing on the long-term relationship, which implies what you talk about, which is you have to have an impact or they're not going to come back. They're not going to keep paying you. And subscription pricing keeps you honest because if you're not delivering on that impact, the customer can cancel. Yeah, exactly. I completely agree. Yeah. It really did help push my thinking. So thank you for that. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> yeah. Keeping me on my feet. So it's interesting because one of the things you've talked about is sort of what's valuable for the customer, why the customer wants this, I think is really clear. And you talked about the risk to the organization. Yes. What is the value to the organization? Yeah, sure. And it ties back to what we were saying before about how that risk is not free. And ultimately what it does, it either keeps customers away and or it shrinks their willingness to pay. So the corollary of that from the firm's perspective is that what I've got is a smaller marketplace where there are profitable customers that stay out. So the way to see it to me is twofold. The first fold is short term and the second fold is more long term. In the short term, I've got a smaller TAM. So if I've got a smaller marketplace, I'm actually not making the most of the financial opportunity right now in the marketplace. I'm, I'm turning away profitable customers. Okay. In the longer term, we have to keep in mind, and again, maybe this is my marketer in me sort of having this biased view, but the customers rule. I mean, they're the ones who pay. So they ultimately are the ones who rule. All right. And so if I am trying to shove down their throats 
a model whereby I'm focusing on the means rather than the ends. And therefore, I'm trying to sell you something up front, take the money, run to the bank and put it in my account. And that creates pain points, access, consumption, and performance. If somebody comes in with a revenue model that is friendlier to the customer, yes, they're most likely going to turn to them. And so that's just, to me, I always see this as the heart of disruption. So this is why it's a more longer term. Somebody comes along and says, you know what? The only way you can buy this particular product right now is if you shell a lot of money up front, but sometimes you don't even use it. Sometimes it doesn't even do what it's supposed to do. You know what? Let me change this to a subscription basis. So where you pay by time. Customer says, okay, at least I'm paying bit by bit and I can see whether it works or not. Or let me change it to a pay-per-use model because I can measure that. That's amazing because I actually pay whenever I use it. Or let me change it to a hybrid between pay-per-use and actual performance, where there's a bit of a performance metric and some of the payment is tied to that. That is even more amazing because are you telling me that I actually pay you when I actually get satisfaction? That's amazing, right? And so most likely the customer or significant a bunch of the customer base will migrate to somebody offer a more customer-focused, let's call it, revenue model. So that's the short-term and long-term benefit or threat, depending how you see it, for the company. Yeah. So in a perfect world, you have infinite models aligned with the outcome desired by every customer that you could possibly serve, right? So if you're a car company, right, if I'm Volvo, you can buy my car, you can subscribe to my fleet of cars for variety, you can use me in an Uber style and I'll send you a car when you need it. You can rent, you can lease, there's lots of different options. That's kind of the ideal. But in real life, that's very messy. It's very hard to run all of these different models concurrently. Even to move from just transactional to subscription, I've seen creates all kinds of messiness and challenge. What do you see as the challenges as organizations take your research to heart and your students start to apply these principles? It's much easier to talk about this in a podcast with you than actually doing it in practice within a company, like you said, right? What is an outcome? What is the outcome that my customers want for my product? Is there more than one? Is there just one? And to what level of depth do we want to go? Is it going from A to B? Is it mobility? Is it satisfaction while you're driving? I mean, what is the level of concreteness to which I want to take the app? So breadth and depth. Then within the outcome discussion, how do we measure it? One thing is whether there's going to be data on this, but what is the actual proxy that I use to measure the outcome, right? If it's in a B2B context, it's slightly easier because the proxy, most likely, the ultimate proxy is going to be the actual financial impact in that in my customer, right? That's kind of nice, right? But in a direct-to-consumer context, how do I make enjoying driving a car into an outcome? How do I measure that, right? So can I measure it? And then is it going to be something that can be tampered with by the customer, So all these sort of issues around understanding what is the outcome, measuring it, communicating it, that is a really, really big issue. And it's one that surprised me because as an academic naive, I said, outcome, easy. Decide on the metric, go for it. But then when you go into companies, wow, I mean, there's quite an issue there. And I've seen companies take five, six, seven years thinking about outcomes before they even made a move, right? So that's two. Three, and I again mentioned this a little bit before, control. Once I have my outcome, once I have data, to what extent can I control the quality of that outcome? Because instantly we're thinking to ourselves, well, it's my product. Clearly I can control the quality of an outcome, but that's not true. All services, 
the customer has something to say about that outcome because, and let's think back to healthcare. I can have the best treatment in the world, the best pill in the world, but if the customer doesn't take it exactly at that time with that interval, together with this other medication, in these conditions, without eating a hamburger beforehand, if that doesn't happen, then all the effect goes away. And I've done nothing as a firm. So how can I influence more so than control my customer to, if they're an active participant in the quality of an outcome, to actually play their part, okay? And again, in a B2B context or an industrial context, for instance, the typical way they handle this is by saying, you know what, customer, I'll do the application for you. Just in case, I'll go into your premises, I will insert my part into your product, and I will make sure everything works just fine because I know how to do it properly, right? It's a costly exercise, but that's how often they do it. Another thing we also mentioned is then looking backwards and re-engineering products and services to make sure they achieve the best possible outcome. And one more thing that I will shut up, Robbie. Another one is, you alluded to this, the transition. That's sort of swallowing the fish sort of idea, right? How do I transition? How do I think about that? Do I have multiple revenue models at the same time as you were saying in the example of Volvo? Do I just burn all the bridges and all the boats and anything else I can find and just move to the next one, a la Adobe? How do I manage the expectations, not only within the company, but also externally from a public company? How do I manage? Because the fish is, even if it's a small sardine, there is a bit of a dip and my costs go up in the short term. Yeah. So yeah, swallowing the fish where your revenue goes down (laughs) while your costs go up is usually frowned upon by your investors, even as they tell you to move toward customer centricity and recurring revenue and all those things. So to summarize, I mean, you brought up like three really good steps. The first piece is have the right data, be able to track it, which a lot of companies, that is a big enough challenge by itself. Second thing is to really understand what the outcome is that you're driving and how you're going to use data to measure that. And then the last thing is ensuring control over the quality of that outcome, making sure that it actually happens, compliance, results, all of those kinds of things. And then you brought up that separate point, which I think is so important, which is just cultural transformation is hard and it takes a long time. Like you said, even if it's just a sardine of change, yes, <laughs> it is painful. I mean, one of the things that comes over and over again, and, and I'm sure you have much more experience with this than I do, is that even the first step, moving away from a transaction model to a subscription model, very often it's a big change in the company because under the transaction model, the product is a profit center. Here is a product, has a certain margin. I want to get lots of that margin. But if you move to a subscription, often that product becomes a cost center because what you're making money off is a subscription and delivering in the context of subscriptions for physical products. In the context of, I need to deliver that product constantly. And now I'm thinking to myself, how do I bring down the cost of delivering that product? So it becomes a cost center and good luck within a company telling people who are like the profit centers of the company, the powerful people in the organization beforehand, telling them now they're a cost center. That is one of the biggest challenges. The example of the news organization, right, where the product is the news. And suddenly you're saying, you know, no, it's not about whether your news wins prizes. It's about whether people read your articles or talking to engineers and saying, you know what, I know that you want to make a really fast engine, but our customers care about cup holders and car seats. So go do that because that's the most important thing. It really changes when the nature of what the product is or what the value is changes, the power shifts in the organization. And people don't like to talk about that or hit that head on. 
because honestly, I think it's just an uncomfortable conversation, but it is so important to greet that head on and acknowledge that the power structure changes and the way you said it so eloquently that your product team is no longer the profit center. Suddenly they're just one more cost. Yeah, I mean, it maybe sounds a lot worse uh, now, but at least not the only profit center. And so the dynamic completely changes. Even the power dynamics within the organization changes. Yeah, really interesting. So who's doing this well? When you think about an example of a company or an organization that is really ends focused or an industry, who's on the cutting edge? Oh, you're going to have to excuse me on this one because I would prefer not sort of singling out anybody who's like doing it well or badly because many of these companies are in sort of in transitions. Let me say, however, that typically I think who tends to have cracked this a bit better are the companies that are in environments where either there is a pressure to make that change because the waste that is inherent to a means model is of public importance. And I'm thinking education, I'm thinking healthcare, the big sort of sector, the big sort of consequential, they're all consequential, but you know what I mean, like the big sectors, right? Public policy. And or the sectors where the outcome question and the measurability and the control element are easier to get around. So and typically B2B. So a lot of industrial goods manufacturers have kind of known about this before, and they've taken what I would call an analog approach to performance-based sort of models, basically money-back guarantees. <laughs> That's the analog version, right? Yeah, yeah. And now moving to this more sort of more complicated, more profit-sharing agreements, revenue-sharing agreements. So in, in industrial companies, sectors, you find that a lot, a lot of that. Medical diagnostics, mining, I'm thinking, agriculture, There's plenty of those examples. And again, by the way, let's stress for the audience, we are not saying tomorrow just go straight from selling a product to selling performance, right? In direct-to-consumer, as a matter of fact, it's very, very hard to do performance models where we are right now in most sectors, but it's relatively easy to do consumption-based models, Mm -hmm. right? And that's where I think you find a lot of growth these days I think at least I'm observing a lot of companies that have already ventured into subscriptions are now starting to add a usage-based component to their subscription because their data is getting so much better. And they realize that by having this usage-based component, they're being even more customer-focused than they were before, right? I don't know if you have observed this as well. Yeah, absolutely. And two examples that pop to mind, one of them is Stitch Fix, which I think in the beginning, people thought of as a subscription box with an outfit every quarter and some new clothes every quarter. Now they've moved away from subscription and more towards get the box when you need it for the occasion when you need it. And then another example is we're seeing with a lot of the streaming services, the streaming video services like Amazon, for example, Amazon Prime Video, you subscribe for whatever your monthly fee is or you get it with your Prime, but then they're asking you to pay if you consume specific titles early. So early access has an extra cost or access to very popular world championships, things like that. So those are two examples of companies that are kind of going one step beyond subscription and considering multiple models to um, to better tie pricing to impact. Yeah, I've seen it also in the SaaS world. It's kind of booming, this idea of having some sort of usage component. 
And then also in the fit fitness industry, similarly, it's happening a lot where prior to that, maybe I had a subscription to certain classes or whatever it was, but now they're adding again a usage component because I may not use the gym as much as I expected to do. <laughs> so, 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 you know. Right, right. And, and ultimately, that should be paid by the muscle, right? <laughs> exactly. Ultimately, yes. The change in your heart rate, your resting heart rate. Yeah, I love it. Okay. So obviously, we could talk all day about pricing and models and outcomes-oriented pricing in particular. But before I close out, I want to do a speed round with you. Are you up for that? They're not exactly what it is, but I'm sure it'll be great. You're a smart <laughs> guy. You'll figure it out. <laughs> Just answer the question without thinking too much. Ah, okay. That one. Okay, fine. Let's do it. <laughs> First subscription you ever had? Uh, gym. Gym membership. Favorite subscription right now? Netflix? It's pretty boring now, but I think it's... Yeah, let's go with Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> the best business book you've read this year besides your own? The Forever Transaction. Besides mine. <laughs> ah, the, <laughs> I'll go with the Fooled by Randomness. And an elegant business model, something that you have admired as you've done your research. People have seen this. as a theater in Spain, in Barcelona, where I usually am at, which some years ago, it's a comedy theater. So they decided to do, basically, instead of charging by the ticket and by the show, as you typically would do, they decided to install a whole bunch of iPads in the back of the seat in front of you and deployed the uh, facial recognition software to understand when you're smiling. And so they started <laughs> charging the audience by the number of smiles because it's a comedy <laughs> theater. It's, it's a performance metric, right? So I think it was 40 euro cents per smile with a cap at 20 or something like this. Oh, that's a uh, bargain. Uh, I would pay 40 euro cents for a for smile, a smile. Any day. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's super clever, I thought. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. Well, Marco Bertini, thank you so much for being on Subscription Stories and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Oh, thank you very much. The time just flew by for me. So thank you. That was Harvard Business School and Asade professor Marco Bertini, co-author of The Ends Game, How Smart Companies Stop Selling Products and Start Delivering Value. For more about Marco, go to marcobertini.com. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Marco, go to RobbieKelmanBaxter.com slash podcast. If you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Marco and this episode if you especially enjoyed it. We read all the reviews because we want your feedback. Thank you for your support. And thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.